Here's an oldie but not so goodie from Ray Comfort and his merry gang at Living Waters. Five or so years ago, Living Waters put out a video titled 10 of the Top Scientific Facts in the Bible. Now, when I was a creationist, I both evangelized using these facts and heard sermons being preached about these facts. And in case you were never a creationist, the mentality behind this list and others like it is that the Bible contains nuggets of information that could only be known by people who were in tune with the creator of the universe because the Bible is so divinely inspired. Solid argument, right? However, now, as an atheist, my impression with all these is that Ray has read a Bible verse tied it somewhat tenuously to something we already knew through our study of the natural world, and then attempts to claim that, aha, the Bible says X, look how awesome it is. When in all reality, this list is the theological equivalent of two plus two equals potato. However, is my impression correct? Well, let me lay out my reasoning as I respond to Ray Comfort's points and see if these really are 10 of the top scientific facts in the Bible. Hey there, I'm Joe Hinkle, YouTuber and filmmaker. I'm actually working on my first movie, Two Souls, right now. But hey, you're listening to this podcast, and I hope you are being inspired by it and having a wonderful day. Thanks so, so much for listening to the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast. And keep having fun. Hey guys, this is Justin from The Prince of Meme Gypt. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at The Prince of Meme Gypt and on Twitter at Internet Moses. You're listening to Damien, the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad, on the Tall Friendly Atheist Dad podcast, guaranteed to be gluten free. Number 10. The Earth's Free Float in Space, Job 26.7 At a time when it was believed that the Earth sat on a large animal, or on a giant, 1500 years before Christ, the Bible spoke of the Earth's free float in space. He hangs the Earth on nothing. Science didn't discover that the Earth hangs on nothing until 1650, 3000 years later. Firstly, Let's see what Job 26.7 actually says. He stretcheth out the north over the empty place, and hangeth the earth upon nothing. This isn't a fact. It's an inference from a poetic statement made among a much wider context. It's not like Job and God were having a discussion about astrophysics and God was hitting Job with the truth bomb. So we have to say immediately that something doesn't quite add up. I also don't know what the nothing here is referring to, but if it is referring to outer space, I don't see why God, the omnipotent and omniscient being, couldn't somehow have explained the concept of outer space to Job or the Jews in general somewhere in the numerous pages of the Bible. I mean, God can dictate the material and the color of the furnishings of the temple down to the nth degree, but outer space, God for some reason can't? 
or just didn't want to explain it and left us to have to translate from ancient languages to find this atheist killer of an argument. So whatever the nothing is, the earth is not hanging on it because the earth is not hanging. The earth is being held in a roughly circular orbit by the gravity of the sun. So stating he hangs the earth upon nothing as a scientific fact will more than likely get you laughed at by actual scientists. Besides, there is no word for gravity in the Bible, and I find that strange for a divinely inspired text that comes from the being that knows everything. But what else is interesting is that Ray only speaks about the second half of Job 26.7 being a scientific fact, and not the first half of the verse. He stretcheth out the north over the empty place. What does stretching the north over the empty place mean? And why is that not one of Ray's scientific facts? Oh, that's right, because it doesn't fit Ray's narrative of being able to tie it to something we already discovered through science. But let me guess, if you're an apologist listening to this right now, you're probably saying in your head, oh my god, this guy is so wrong, he needs to read the context. And I find this mentality amazing. When a Bible verse can be shown to be blatantly incorrect, the response is, read the context. That was poetic, not literal. But when the Bible says something that can be molded to be seen as scientifically accurate if you squint and take some liberty with the words, then no context is needed. Those words were clearly said to be taken literally. Because in the apologist world, the correct context to read the Bible in is the one that shows the Bible is either literally correct or poetically correct, according to what you think correct is. But if you're not an apologist, how about you and I look at the rest of Job 26 and try to find some more scientific facts? Job 26.5 The dead are in anguish. Those beneath the waters and those still in them. Would Ray Comfort be willing to say that there are dead people anguishing in the waters and below the waters? If we found a dead body in the water, would Ray be willing to stand next to the corpse and say, This guy is in anguish? No, because he's dead. Or how about Job 26.9? He covers the face of the full moon. Last time I checked, it was the clouds that block our view of the moon, and then every month, the earth gets in the way of the sunlight that normally reaches the moon. No God needed. I wonder why Ray didn't put that as a scientific fact as well. And third, this verse about hanging the earth on nothing conflicts directly with the verses that say the earth is on pillars. 1 Samuel 2 verse 8 For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. What about Psalm 75 3? The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly. How about Job chapter 9 verse 6? He makes the earth shake from its place and makes its pillars tremble. But wait up. 
18 chapters later, Job then says, God hangs the earth on nothing. How can the earth hang on nothing, but also be shaken from its place on pillars? Talk about contradictions. Number nine, wash under running water. Leviticus 15.13 Ray starts off with the story of Dr. Ignis Semmelweis, who found a way to reduce the mortality rate in his hospital at the time. Encyclopedia Britannica documents that in 1845, a young doctor in Vienna named Dr. Agnes Semmelweis was horrified at the death rate of women who gave birth in hospitals. As many as 30% died after childbirth. Semmelweis noted that doctors would examine the bodies of patients who died, then, without washing their hands, they would go straight to the next ward and examine expectant mothers. This was their normal practice, because the presence of microscopic diseases was unknown. The presence of microscopic diseases was unknown. Why would it be unknown? Was there not a being with superior knowledge who could communicate with us and tell us about these things? Look now at the specific instructions the Bible gives to the Hebrew nation over 3,000 years ago when it comes to dealing with disease. And when he who has a discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing, wash his clothes, and bathe his body in running water. Then he shall be clean. Nowadays, doctors wash their hands in running water. Yes, along with antibacterial soap, multiple times a day, as well as wearing gloves. Doctors don't just splish-splash their hands in water and that's it. Now, one thing that Ray left out of his Ignis Semmelweis story was that the doctors he was in charge of didn't wash their hands in water either. They washed their hands in chlorinated lime. Now, I would have been greatly impressed if, one, Ray gave more pertinent facts of the story, because the Ignis Semmelweis story really is a fascinating one. Two, that the Bible said to wash your hands in chlorinated lime before you go touching babies. And three, to do so because there are microscopic diseases around. So this fact isn't really a fact. But note something here as well. In the NIV, NLV, and ESV versions, it uses the term fresh water. In the Dewey Reams Bible, it says living water. It's only the KJV and its variants that say running water. Now, Ray wouldn't be playing the Select the translation that says what I want game, right? Oh, who am I kidding? I do the same all the time. But it's funny how I can pick and choose which translation of the inerrant and infallible word of God I want to make a point. The other thing to bear in mind here is that when the Bible, and in particular the Old Testament and Pentateuch, uses the word clean, it doesn't mean medically clean or hygienic. It means ceremonially clean or spiritually clean, not clean in a medical sense. Number eight, information in the blood. Leviticus 17.11. 
Leviticus 17 verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement. Most of us don't think too much about the fact that a doctor can find out the health of our flesh by taking a sample of our blood. But the test can evaluate the health of our kidneys, our liver, thyroid and heart. Among other things, the blood can reveal diseases and conditions such as cancer, AIDS, diabetes, anemia, and coronary heart disease. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. I'm not sure how a verse about blood being necessary for sacrifices supports the idea of information in the blood. If Leviticus 17.11, or any other verse in the Bible, said, When someone is sick, get a vial of their blood and perform some functions on it, because there is a lot we can tell about a person from their blood, because there is a lot we can tell about a person by testing their blood. I would agree 100%. Scientific fact in the Bible. But that's not what this verse is saying. This verse simply says that the life of a creature is in the blood. And I'm going to hazard a guess and say they wrote that because when a creature runs out of blood, it dies. It also says that God will forgive sins when the blood of a creature is spilt. Can someone tell me I'm wrong when I say that Christianity is, in essence, a blood magic religion? But let's play that favourite game of context and see what Ray is overlooking by not including verses 10 and 12 in Leviticus 17. Verse 10. If anyone from the house of Israel or a foreigner living among them eats any blood... I will set my face against that person and cut him off from among his people. Verse 12. Therefore I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner living among you eat blood. So again, this fact isn't a fact. Firstly, it's not saying what Ray is saying it does. And second, this fact in the Bible is merely an inference made from something said in an entirely different context. That context isn't, how do we find out what is causing this person to be sick? The context is, God needs blood to forgive your sins, and don't eat anything with blood in it, otherwise God, the standard of love and morality, will mess you up. Number 7. The Circle of the Earth Isaiah 40.22 The scriptures tell us that the earth is round. Isaiah 40.22 says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. The word translated circle is the Hebrew word chud, which is also translated circuit or compass, depending on the context. That is, it indicates something spherical, rounded or arched, not something that's flat or square. Ray is correct in that the word circle in this verse is a translation of the word kug. And please forgive my Hebrew pronunciation here. But kug never means a ball or a sphere. 
it only ever means a circle. And I know this because the Hebrew word for a ball or sphere is kadur, as we see in Isaiah 22.18. So Isaiah clearly knew the difference between a circle and a sphere. And another Hebrew lesson here. The word kug is not an adjective, but is a noun. It's not describing something as circular. It's talking about an actual circle. And then when a noun is followed by a noun, what it means is that the first noun is connected to the second noun. And guess what follows Kug in Isaiah 40.22? Another noun, in this case Eretz, meaning land. Because remember, there is no Hebrew word for the planet Earth in the Bible. Whenever you see Earth in the Bible, you have to bear in mind that it only means land, not the entire planet that we know. Just to add one more thing, Isaiah 44.13 uses the word compass, which is from the word mekuga. And what was that second syllable? Kug, or circle. Bang! So, what we're reading in Isaiah 40 verse 22 is that God sits above the circle that encompasses the land, i.e., Isaiah's God sits above a disc-shaped earth, not a globe. But it's a cute attempt by Ray Comfort to try and make it as such. But let's see what else Isaiah 40.22 says. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, and spreads them out like a tent to live in. I wonder why Ray Comfort left that one out. Hmm. Number six. The Bible and Oceanography, Psalm 8, 8. Matthew Murray is considered the father of oceanography. He noticed the expression, the paths of the sea, in Psalm 8, verse 8, written 2,800 years ago. And he said, if God said there are paths in the sea, I'm going to find them. Now, I'm no expert on oceanography here. But I don't think it's too much for a nation based on the Mediterranean coast to have understood the currents that oceans carry and think of them as paths. This may be the most straight-up pronouncement of a fact Ray has given here so far. But again, it's still only a poetic saying. The author of this psalm is not saying that there are literal paths in the sea. That would be silly. Big ships get pulled along big currents in big bodies of water, and that is akin to a path. But we haven't gone down to the ocean floor and found something like a paved highway or something. Maury then took God at his word and went looking for these paths, and we are indebted to his discovery of the warm and cold continental currents. Right there is the explanation of what the paths of the sea actually are, the flow of different temperature water in very much the same way that hot and cold air interact for wind to blow. Unless you're saying that God installed a massive water heater, a massive water cooler, and a global traffic system somewhere on the earth 
to make sure everything runs along their designated paths. But again, that would be silly. It's interesting how Ray here plays the intense music and uses a hero shot of Mari holding his Bible. Now, I may not know much about oceanography, but I do know how to engage in ad hominems. Matthew Mari was indeed a devout Christian. He did indeed take the paths of the sea verse literally, He was also the commander of the Confederate Navy and invented the first electronically controlled naval mine, which actually wiped out a lot of Union ships during the Civil War. You know, the ships belonging to the side that wanted slaves to be free. And why do I bring that up? Because Matthew Murray was pro-slavery himself. And not only was he pro-slavery, but he had an idea to export America's slaves to Brazil, claiming that there was work to be done by Africans with the American axe in his hand. How's that for a devout Christian who reads the word of God as literally as he can? Number five, light waves and radio waves, Job 38.35. This is the verse Ray uses. What scientific fact do you think you could glean from it? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. I, for one, could not work out what scientific fact this verse was saying, but this is Ray's interpretation. In the book of Job, chapter 38, verse 35, God asked Job a very strange question back in 1500 BC. He asked, Can you send out lightnings? that they may go and say to you, here we are. This says that light can be sent and then manifest itself in speech. This verse is not about light manifesting itself into speech. It was God challenging Job by using an analogy that anthropomorphizes a natural phenomenon. If you did want to try and make this verse as fact, Why not also say that God sends lightning? I mean, it says it right there at the start of the verse. And then why not say that lightning bolts speak as well? Oh, sorry, I forgot. If the context makes the Bible look wrong or foolish, it's clearly the wrong context. Now, in this next section, Ray does a switcheroo. He quotes a verse that says, Do the lightning bolts report to you? But then it goes on a monologue about electromagnetic radiation. But did you know that all electromagnetic radiation from radio waves to X-rays travels at the speed of light? Lightning and light rays are two very different things. One is the flow of electrical charge from the clouds to the ground, and the other is electrons and photons moving at specific frequencies. Number four, the first law of thermodynamics, Genesis 2.1. This one surprised me, because usually creationists spew out the second law of thermodynamics as proof of God. 
never the first. But this section of Ray's video went for a minute and a half, and do you know how many times he mentions the first law of thermodynamics? None. Does he even say what the first law of thermodynamics is? No, not even once. Genesis chapter 2 verse 1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. Everything is finished. Nature is complete. The brilliance of the light-giving sun is finished. The blue skies are finished. The clouds drop their rain, cleansing the air and giving life to the earth. The tall trees are finished, giving us oxygen to breathe. The rivers are finished, teeming with fish and filling our great oceans with water. The land is finished, yielding plants that give us food to eat. Nothing has a half-evolved eye or ear or leg or brain. It's all finished. From the animals, to man, to winged birds, to the beauty and fragrance of the rose that blossoms to God's glory and for our pleasure. Nothing is evolving. Everything is finished, just as the Bible says. So firstly, the verse, Genesis 2.1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And just what is the first law of thermodynamics? The change in internal energy of a system is equal to the heat added to the system minus the work done by the system. Or you may have also heard it put as energy can't be created or destroyed, simply change state. So there is no way in hell or heaven that you can get the first law of thermodynamics from Genesis 2.1. So I won't even bother debunking the rest of what Ray said for this section. Ray debunks himself by his lack of accuracy. Number three, Ship Dimensions, Genesis 6.15. In Genesis chapter 6, God gave Noah the dimensions of the 1.5 million cubic foot ark he was to build. It's interesting to note that in 1993, a scientific study was conducted by the South Korean world-class ship research center, Crisco. They compared 12 hulls of different shapes and discovered that no modern design outperformed the biblical model. The length of the ark was six times its width and ten times its height. Many contemporary ships are built with similar proportions, although the length to breadth ratio is usually chosen with regard to the power required to move them through the water. The ark needed only to keep afloat. I have not for the life of me been able to find the Chriso study that Ray Comfort cites. I found plenty of creationist articles mentioning the Chriso study, but no one seems to either have a link to the study or to want to post it, which is weird for a group of people who are constantly fighting off accusations of being unscientific. A legitimate report from an accepted body whose findings support the idea that a vessel of the dimensions of Noah's Ark could withstand a year on water will be the first leap to a scientific slam dunk. But alas, among the numerous creationists out there, there are a lot of citations by evangelical universities, there seems to be a lot of talk on the creationist blogs, but no goods. So even though I didn't find the original study, what I did find out was that it turns out that this Chriso project wasn't solely a Chriso project. It was a joint collaboration between Chriso and the Korean Association of Creation Research, which struck me as funny, because every single mention of the Chriso project by AIG, CMI, or Living Waters 
never mentions that it was a joint creationist project and specifically for the KACR. And where did I learn all this from? From the International Journal of Korean History. And unfortunately, the KACR website is either down or defunct. But let's grant all this and say yes, a boat where its length is six times the width and ten times the height is the most hydrodynamically stable. This still would not count as a scientific fact from the Bible. The Bible never says, A boat whose length is six times its width and ten times its height is the most hydrodynamically stable. All the Bible did was recount instructions given to a man to build a boat that matched those proportions. Seriously, Ray is zero for eight at this stage. Number two, the Bible and quarantine, Leviticus 13, 46. In Leviticus 13, verse 46, the Bible speaks of quarantine long before medical science discovered the importance of isolating those with infectious diseases. In 1490 BC, it gives instructions on what to do if someone has leprosy. He shall be unclean. All the days that he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean, and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Laws of quarantine were not instigated by modern man until the 17th century. The devastating Black Death of the 14th century took an estimated 70 million lives. This was because they failed to separate the sick from the healthy. When whole families fell ill, it was attributed to bad air. However, putting into practice the ordinances of quarantine laid out in Scripture would have saved millions of lives. This is another one in the not-stated-as-a-fact-it's-an-inference category. The Bible does not say that anyone who is sick should isolate themselves. This passage in Leviticus actually only refers to people with leprosy or skin diseases, not people who have colds, flu, black death, or COVID. And again, Ray is playing fast and loose here. Let's look at Leviticus 13.45, the verse that precedes this scientific fact. Those who suffer from a serious skin disease must tear their clothing and leave their hair uncombed. They must cover their mouth and call out, unclean, unclean. Why doesn't Ray also say that tearing your clothes, covering your mouth and screaming, unclean, unclean, is also a scientific fact? because it doesn't fit his narrative for a start, and he'd be laughed at if he ever gave this as medical advice. And again, Ray is playing the choose the translation that fits what I want game. Back in Fact 9, Ray specifically used the King James Version to say that the Bible says to use running water when it was only the KJV and its derivatives that said that. But now... In this passage, Leviticus 13.46, it's the KJV that specifies leprosy, not diseases in general, whereas the more modern versions, they're the ones that say disease, not the KJV. Number one, dinosaurs in the Bible. Job 40, verses 15 to 24. 
In Job 40 verse 15, God himself speaks to Job of a creature he created called Behemoth. Some Bible commentators believe this creature is a hippopotamus, as does this particular commentator. Behold now Behemoth, which I made with you. He eats grass as an ox. Lo, his strength is at his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his stones are wrapped together. His bones are as strong pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. He is the chief of the ways of God. He who made him can make his sword to approach unto him. Surely the mountains bring him forth food, where all the beasts of the field play. He lies under the shady trees in the covert of the reed and fens. The shady trees cover him with their shadow. The willows of the brook compass him about. Behold, he drinks up a river. He hastens not. He trusts that he can draw up Jordan unto his mouth. He takes it with his eyes. His nose pierces through sneers. Science can only speculate as to why the dinosaur disappeared. But the answer may be in this passage of scripture. As we have seen, some commentators think this is a reference to the hippopotamus. However, one of the characteristics of this massive animal was that it had a tail that is likened to a cedar, which is a very large tree. Clearly, the hippopotamus doesn't qualify. Here are the characteristics of this animal. It was the largest of all the creatures that God had made. It was plant-eating, that is, herbivorous. It had its strength in its hips, and a tail like a large tree. It had very strong bones, lived among the trees, drank massive amounts of water, and was not disturbed by a raging river. Ray seems to hang his hat on one verse out of the lot here. Verse 17. Its tail sways like a cedar. To say that, yes, this passage is about dinosaurs. And even on the screen, he plays a clip of a 3D generated, what I, in my ignorance, will say looks like a crappy brontosaurus. But there's a few problems with this fact. The first is that Ray has taken one verse out of the nine to support his dinosaur theory because he's discarded every other verse that supports a hippo or elephant interpretation. Look, it's clearly a dinosaur! When it's not really. For example, feeds on grass like an ox. But the large dinosaur Ray shows on the screen is eating leaves out of a tree. Verse 21. Under the lotus plant it lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. There is no way Ray's brontosaurus is hiding in the water. What about the sinews of its thighs? The problem here is that the word for thigh is actually better translated as testicle. And guess what? Hippo testicles are buried deep inside the hippo's abdomen. And the only people saying that this verse refers to literal dinosaurs are creationists. Out of all of the commentary and study tools available, not one of them says that this passage refers to large dinosaurs. If this passage was about dinosaurs which are now extinct, 
why does no passage in the Bible or any Jewish commentary show any awareness that dinosaurs have now disappeared? Not one verse, not one passage says, hey God, thanks for getting rid of all those large creatures that can kill us by stepping on us. Next thing here is the passage, its tail sways like a cedar. Note the passage does not say it stands like a cedar, it's that it sways like a cedar. Cedars are very strong, indeed. However, there is a case to be made that this is actually a reference to a penis. Zanav, the word used, can mean a literal tail, but also a figurative one, if you get what I mean. Especially when this verse comes after the sinews of its thighs passage. The Bible then says, He that made him can make his sword approach unto him. It would seem that God had caused this, the largest of all the creatures he had made, to become extinct. So God created an animal just to arbitrarily kill it? Wow. Ray Comfort is zero for ten here. And this isn't because I hate Ray Comfort or Christianity. It's just that there is very little here that Ray said that doesn't fall apart when we actually dive in and scrutinize it. And nothing he said could be classified as a fact, let alone divinely told thousands of years before scientists worked it out. When we read ancient texts, we need to work out what the original authors meant. Exegesis, not eisegesis, which is where we read what we want into the text. And creationists are black belts in eisegesis. <laughs> 